from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, March 20th. Today, the ways the coronavirus is reshaping America, social distancing with roommates, and how churches are responding to the pandemic. Last night, I I was having trouble sleeping. I was thinking about, among other things, like all the things I was worried about before this struck, you know, I was trying to get in better shape, maybe lose a few pounds. I was trying to you know, pick up a hobby at some point. I'm William Wen. I'm a health reporter for The Washington Post. The world feels so different now, and all those things are still important. It's just, it's hard to have perspective right now, I think, is the thing. One of the most authoritative modelers out there, this guy from Imperial College, he has a a, a model showing if we do nothing, 2.2 million people die. If we do some moderate restrictions, which we already have been doing, this is like isolating the sick, quarantine, it could be 1.1 million. And so he said, if you enact, you pull on every single lever you can, every restriction, drastic, drastic restrictions, you can suppress that down. And he doesn't give a specific number, but you can get it below the 1.1 million number of deaths. And of course, the thing that makes all of this more complicated is the fact that because testing has been so sporadic, we don't really have enough data to know where we are in the models, like where where we're tracking so far, because a lot of people, I think, could or definitely have coronavirus that have been told, look, just stay home, take care of yourself, let us know if it gets much worse, but aren't actually getting confirmed as a case. That's right. The testing does play a role in this. One thing that like really struck home with me, though, as I was talking to epidemiologists, is that the testing is is essential. There's no question about that. But what they were somewhat frustrated about is like, the whole country is so fixated on the test. These models show that in some ways, it matters greatly what the tests show us, but we already know what our trajectory is. We should be scrambling. We should be pulling out all the stops at every level to avoid things because we know it's going to be bad. It's just a question of how bad. And so there's no sense in waiting to prepare or like waiting to take drastic measures because those measures are needed right now. And what have healthcare workers and hospital workers been saying about the ways that their lives have changed so far, even in the last couple of weeks? Yeah, we talked to um, several hospitals about, you know, uh, the models they're running locally. There was this one chief of pulmonology in Philadelphia, he was telling us, you know, just this weekend, they gave him the most recent projections of how many patients are going to be flocking there. Uh, this was a, a best case scenario projection. And he said he felt physically ill because there, I, there's a lot of preparations of equipment, space, you know, rooms that they're going to need, but there's also mental preparation. He was saying that the the staff he was working with, they could just see from the projection that they were looking at. This surge of patients is going to overwhelm them. They're going to be forced to make impossible choices, which patients to give ventilators and beds and which that are simply just going to die. He said they were terrified. 
And obviously, this is what people are talking about when we talk about flattening the curve, right? Like that we want to basically buy time for hospitals and for healthcare workers so that there's not this huge wave of people coming all at once, but that so we can spread out any of the cases over more time so people can receive better care so hospitals aren't overloaded. But I think that the thing that we don't realize about this flattening the curve thing is that that basically means that this whole disruptive part of our lives is going to take a lot longer that the ideal scenario isn't a case where we all go back to normal in two or three weeks, that we put these social distancing measures in place. We keep schools closed for months so that that process can take a long time. And so there's like this inverse relationship between the number of people who could potentially die and the amount of time that life in the U.S. is basically at a standstill. What I didn't realize myself is that, like, as you put so much downward pressure on the curve, you're actually stretching it out. And so the the more successful we are at flattening the curve, the longer we're going to have to keep up all of these drastic restrictions, which is good. It means we're going to be saving lives. The healthcare system is going to be less overwhelmed. But it also kind of raises the question of, can we as a country really sustain these kinds of drastic restrictions, just stay at home, basically, for months and months up to like a year without end. How do you think this is going to change the country in the long term? It's really hard to say. And it's something that's been really on my mind, especially the last few days. I talked to um, a medical anthropologist who had spent months studying the 1918 flu. It's this pandemic that just massive deaths across the world. She studied this just the city of Baltimore, what it did there. It was just fascinating. It felt like hearing from the past what are what lays ahead of us in the future. And she was talking about how during their health care surge of patients, they had families waiting outside hospitals, begging and trying to even bribe doctors to be treated. Hmm. People saw the best of America at that time. There were sewing circles that were sewing up gauze masks and hospital bedding. But you also saw the worst in people, too, where you had, similar to what we're seeing now, very xenophobic kind of rumors and conspiracy theories starting to spread. It was a little frightening to hear, (laughs) to be honest. And when you have these incredible projections for the number of people that could potentially die here in the U.S. and around the world if this doesn't get contained soon... I guess, how do you stop people from panicking even while trying to get them to take it seriously? Because on the one hand, you have you know, scientists saying that this could be one to two million people. And then on the other hand, you have people who are still partying on Miami Beach because flight fares are cheap. So how do you strike that balance? You don't want to be alarmist. But one thing that just kind of struck me is that I don't think people realize the scales that we're talking about. And I don't think they realize the the length of time, for example, we're going to have to have these restrictions, the number of possible deaths that there's going to be. And so at one point in our discussions about how to write this story, you know, I think we decided that we don't want to be alarmist, but we want people to know this is the kind of worst case scenario. And this is why we need to act, because as urgent as things feel right now, I don't think they're urgent enough, to be honest. A lot of the experts we talk to, the hospitals, I think there's a lot of frustration that America, at least parts of America, doesn't realize what is happening, how bad this could be, how we just all need to like move much quicker than we are, or a lot of people are going to die. 
As I was hearing all of this, I think there was a decision, for me at least, that it's okay to, we need to paint an accurate picture of this is what the models show. We need to all just get into gear and we'd rather be wrong and and saying all of some of the worst case scenarios laying out if they don't come true than to be right and too late in, in preparing. William One covers health and science for The Post. So for a lot of people, social distancing means that you're spending time either alone or just with your family, not really leaving the house, not interacting with other people. That is Maura Judkiss, reporter for the Style Section. But for people who live in Washington group houses, which may have as many as five or six roommates, that becomes kind of impossible. So we have uh, four people living here right now. Three people live upstairs, and then we have someone that lives in the basement. We had a fifth roommate, and our fifth roommate just moved up to New York. But we all use the space because we're all friends, like all of it, pretty much. I think a lot of housemates in group houses are trying to figure out what is okay and what's not okay. You know, it's just a, a much more difficult situation if you're if you're trying to deal with this virus, having to account for all these other people who might have very independent and separate lives from yours. So I talked to Dutch Seats, who lives in a Bloomingdale house in D.C. Hello, this is Dutch. Hey, Dutch, this is Martine from The Post. How are you? Doing well. Just uh, getting a little work done here. I asked him to send me some photos of his room so I could describe it. And the second floor, we've got four bedrooms, which all share one bathroom. Hmm. And then the top floor is where I live, which is one bedroom, has its own bath, and has its own separate uh, you know, air conditioning unit and whatnot. So for them, it was more about containing the spread. And he and his roommates realized that his bedroom, which is on the third floor of their house, was the most isolated room. And that would be the best room for them to contain it if, if one of them were to get sick. You know, the, the thought process is, is that we need to, as soon as we find out someone that, you know, maybe might have contracted the illness, we need to isolate them in the most safest way possible. Then they would try to keep the rest of them from getting sick by sort of locking this person up on the third floor. Sort of an infirmary, really, for the roommates who get sick. So, so you've basically sacrificed your room as the potential quarantine area. Yeah. But for other people in group houses, they kind of feel like, well, if one of us gets it, we're all going to get it. So we might as well just seal the house up and try and take care of each other and play video games on the couch and have fun. So one of my roommates just came back from Spain, which is now obviously having quite the outbreak. I spoke with Shannon McDermott, who lives in a group house in D.C. And so the day he came back, we all decided to self-quarantine. And at first they were going to try and isolate that person by themselves and then realized that it would be kind of hard in a house where people share the bathroom and the kitchen. Even though like there aren't symptoms or anything and he's been back for a little while, we just wanted to be make sure that like immunocompromised folks were okay and like you know you could be asymptomatic and not know so i think once he returned we all kind of were like oh man like 
this is it. And we put in that Instacart delivery for like the last couple things that we needed. Um, and now we're here. <laughs> and so they've decided to just try and make the best of it. And they're going to watch movies. They actually have this bucket list of activities that they want to do together. Let me see if I can find it, actually. Um, the first one just says second half of Die Hard with a question mark. I think it's because <laughs> my roommate watched the first half on the plane. We have Mario Party ba- Battle Royale on here. Watch Little Woman for the third time. We've got a couple board games that you know we'll, we'll end up probably breaking out. We got, we're trying to figure out a, a new TV series that none of us have watched. We have not found any major luck with that uh, as of yet. Oh, we're making one of my roommates watch the Bachelor finale. I've seen it twice. Um, it it also becomes interesting, I think, when you have people who have either recently moved into the group house or are trying to move out because there's a lot of turnover in these group houses. So if someone has just moved in from Craigslist, you know, you're living with this relative stranger. And all of a sudden, you're faced with the idea of um, waiting out a pandemic with someone that you met on the internet, and like you don't know how well they wash their hands. So do you feel like you guys are kind of policing each other? If one person's like, oh, well, maybe I could run out and hang out with a couple of friends that everyone else is like, no, you're going to mess it up for all of us. Yeah, no, we, we do see that. I know um, well, last week, I know that one of my one of our friends wanted to go to happy hour. And it was like, hey, look, you're really putting us all at risk by you going to a happy hour. Is it really worth all of us getting sick because you want to go grab a, a beer or something? I think it has made us like more direct. Like I know I had Twitter notifications on at one point and my phone kept buzzing. I was excited to group chat and one of my roommates was like, could you please shut that off? And I was like, yeah, 100%, um, which is like not something that, you know, we would really typically normally do. When you think about how it's going to be when we come out on the other side of this, like people who are quarantined together in a group house, I'm sure that they will either be like family at the end or they will want to kill each other because they've been cooped up for so long. Um, I don't know if there's really any in between. I like really can't imagine what this would be like for me if I was alone. I think I would have like a really hard time with it. And so I am just like so grateful to like be in this housing situation right now while this is happening that I'm not, I'm like kind of like any annoyance out the window. Like I'm just happy to, you know, have friends (laughs) that I'm around. (laughs) Moore Judkiss is a reporter for the Style Section. And now, one more thing. By last Sunday, it was pretty hard to find a church that was open in D.C., but I went to two that were still having services. Both of them had a smaller-than-usual crowd, but they still had worshipers who were eager to be there, still had really, really great worship music. Here you can hear the Reverend Derek Jordan at Plymouth Congregational United Church of Christ, who has an unbelievable voice, whether or not there's a choir showing up. (laughs) He was ready to pray. My name's Julie Zosmer. I'm a religion reporter at The Post. 
And that's happening more and more across the country, that churches, even those that decided to stay open this Sunday, either because of CDC recommendations or their state or local officials really cracking down on group gatherings, or just because they're seeing more and more of what's happening, they're deciding that they need to close. Churches, just like every other institution, whether it's a sports league or a school or anything else, are getting so much information that seems to change day to day, hour to hour, and they're not really sure who to turn to. In earlier days, we've seen a turn recently, but when President Trump was downplaying the seriousness of the virus, many evangelical Christians in particular, supporters of the president who take what he says very, very seriously, were saying, the president doesn't say that this is a serious thing. I don't need to close my church. I'm going to keep going about my life just like I always have. There was a pastor I talked to in Arkansas who told me that closing isn't interpreted as caring for you. Closing is seen as liberalism or giving into the hype. He got together with five other pastors to decide together what they should do. And one of the pastors, when they got in the room together, said, well, half my church is ready to lick the floor to prove there's no actual virus. So he didn't see how he would sort of get away with closing his church. And he didn't. He went to lots of precautions to clean the church, to make sure they were going to do whatever they could to not transmit disease, but they stayed open. It's also a very difficult thing to close a church at a time when people are anxious and scared, when people are sick and dying. That's when we turn to religion more than any other time. And to close when people need those spiritual resources is a very difficult decision to make. Well, it might be hard right now to walk into a church and get a sermon. It's getting harder and harder to find a place to do that. But if you're looking for clear calls of moral reckoning in this time, they are abundant online. At My own synagogue that I grew up at in Pennsylvania, I saw the email saying on Facebook Live they had more than 50 people watch while the rabbi and his family taught everyone how to make challah French toast. Um, There are lots of different creative ideas out there for how to gather. Go online and you will find sermons right and left from clergy who are speaking up, who are taking a voice of leadership and authority and spiritual guidance and are saying, look, the best thing we can do right now to do our duty to others is to stay away. Then usually we tell you as clergy in a crisis to come to church. We're telling you right now to stay at home and to pray and to protect people around you. Julie Zosmer writes about religion for The Post. And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Jordan Marie Smith, Rennie Svernovsky, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. Special thanks to Bishop Sand and Ariel Plotnik, who are collecting stories from around the country about life during the pandemic. To share your story, send a voice memo to postreports at washpost.com. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.